So, ooh, there I am. <clears throat> About 10 years ago, maybe a little longer ago than that, <clears throat> there was a survey done. And in this survey, non-Christians were asked their opinion. So this is probably worse now since it's a pretty dated survey. Non-Christians were asked what their opinions were of Christians. And 87% of non-Christians saw Christians as judgmental. 87%. saw them as hypocritical. In our passage today from Matthew 7, Jesus addresses both of these things, judgmentalism and hypocrisy. We're going to get there in just a minute, but I want us to go a little uh, a roundabout way. I want us to look at what the Apostle Paul says about these things over in Romans 2. You, therefore, have no excuse, <clears throat> you who pass judgment on someone else, for at Whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you, pa- you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgments against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? What Paul is saying there is, we know that it was God's kindness, God's patience, God's forbearance, God's mercy that led us to Christ. Why do we think then that the rules have now changed and it will be our judgmentalism, our harsh, critical words and spirit, our condemning nature toward others that will lead them to Christ by constantly pointing out their sin? Doing so makes us hypocrites. Again, Paul deals with both judgmentalism and hypocrisy in Romans 2. But let's look at what Jesus says over in Matthew 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Many scholars look at this, and immediately they see the word, do not judge, or you too will be judged. They see those words, and they say, oh, this is saying to us that if We are judgmental. God will judge us. We'll get to that in a minute. But I want to say, first of all, that that does not take into account the grace of God. We understand that uh, God's forgiveness of us, God's mercy to us, is a free gift. God's grace by our faith. Uh, God does not judge us if we have submitted to the mercy of Christ, if we have surrendered to Christ. That's not what's going on here. I do believe, however, that Jesus sometimes speaks in a hyperbole in order to make his point. There are plenty of times, as I've said before, where Jesus speaks and we do not need to take him literally, but we do need to take him seriously. And he's speaking seriously here. He's saying God finds our judgmental attitudes towards others, towards our neighbors, as abhorrent. And we shouldn't do it. But there are others who say, not too many, but there are others who say, no, what really is going on here is not about God's judgment because God is never mentioned in those two verses. Really what's going on is if we are judgmental toward others, they will be judgmental toward us. If we are harsh and condemning and critical towards others, that's how others will treat us. And I think there's something to that too. We know that to be true. But in reality, I don't see any reason why it can't be a little bit of both of these things. Both the reality that when we are judging people, others will judge us, and the reality that God hates it when we are judgmental. Then Jesus goes on to give us a little bit of a a parable. In verses 3 through 5, why do you look at the speck of sawdust? And hopefully, as you, as you hear this, try to think of it as a bit of a, a cartoon. It's meant to be comical. 
Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, your sister's eye, and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye or your sister's eye. The picture is, I said, sort of a cartoon. It's meant to make us laugh because it's absurd. You are trying to go and remove, literally, a splinter out of your neighbor's eye because of something you don't like. All the while, you have in your eye a plank. And as you turn your head around the room, you are smashing into things, you are tearing pictures off the wall, you are destroying the furniture. It's the same way with our judgmentalism. When we are judgmental, when we in our sin go after others in their sin, without taking note that we are sinful people, when we focus first on others and not on ourselves, we make a mess of things. We destroy things. We destroy relationships. We hinder people from coming to God. So he has that little parable, then he follows it up with this very strange parable. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. First of all, do not give dogs what is sacred is a a priestly rule. Do not give to dogs the meat that has been offered on the altar to God. It's sacred. Do not give it to dogs. What is going on here is uh, an example of what is called Hebrew parallelism. I imagine other cultures have it too. Jesus is Jewish. Matthew is Jewish. They know how this works. It works like this. You say one thing, but you say it in two different ways to make sure it's communicated. So both the do- giving dogs what is sacred and throwing pearls to pigs are the same thing. Secondly, this is what is called, here's a nice theological, biblically scholarly word that no one ever uses in real life, is a chiasm. A chiasm. A chiasm is something that uh, says one or two simple truths, it tells you the truths, and then it tells you them again in reverse order. So you can't, I apologize, you can't see this as well online because what the software does, it changes everything to center justified and gets rid of all the color. But what is going on here is uh, we have an A, B, B, A pattern. The A's go together, the yellow goes together, and the B's go together, right? So it's not, the pigs aren't going to tear you to pieces, the dogs are. Do not give to dogs what is sacred or they may turn and tear you to pieces. That's what's meant to be inside. Do not throw pearls to pigs or they may trample them under their feet. They're not going to know what to do with them. They're not going to digest them. They're just going to trample them in the mud. And over the years, over the centuries, you can imagine how this has been used. It has been used to say, some scholars believe that Jesus is saying here, do not, and this is a little tricky, but both dogs and pigs were racial slurs used by uh, some Jewish people in the ancient world to refer to Gentiles. Not a pretty picture. Some people think Jesus is saying, don't do this before the resurrection. Don't worry about spreading this good news to the Gentiles yet. We need to focus on the people of Israel. I don't really see it that way, personally. But some do. Some have used to say, uh, non-believers should not be allowed to take communion. Don't give. Don't throw your pearls before pigs. Don't let non-believers take part in communion. Others have said, we shouldn't even share the gospel with some people. Right? Because it's sacred, and they're going to reject it or abuse it. None of this keeps... In, there, there is some sense in which you see Paul do this uh, with, the, with the Jews. When he realizes they're not receiving his message, he shakes the dust off his feet, and he goes to the Gentiles. There is some sense in which there's something there. 
And we'll get to a little bit of that in just a minute. But there are things that are, that are sacred that we should not just throw out like that. I think there's more to it than any of these. These things don't really, in my opinion, take, uh, take uh, into consideration the context that we find in Matthew 7. Jesus has just talked about being judgmental. And he said, do not judge. Maybe what he's doing here is, because I think these, these sections are all related, even though it doesn't always appear to be. Maybe what he's saying here is, uh, do not judge. That's who we are supposed to be as Christians, not judgmental. But on the other hand, also have some discernment. There may come a time when your uh, extending of grace and mercy and the benefit of the doubt to someone in sin or someone who might be judged is actually a holy or sacred thing that you're giving to them. There may come a time when they reject it, when they abuse it, and maybe the best, the most loving thing you can do is let the chips fall where they may. Maybe this is a form of tough love. Don't judge them. Start there. Do not judge but also be aware that there may come a time when you have to simply let things happen the way they're going to happen because as those of us who are parents know, as hard as it is, we know that sometimes letting your children experience the consequences of their sin is the most loving thing you can do, as hard as it is. Maybe this is Jesus correcting just a little bit what he has just said. So we understand that no, you're not to judge, but discernment and judgment are two different things and there may be a place where you have to pull back a little bit and say, I've done what I can. I'm not going to keep throwing what is holy before them because they don't understand it. And maybe the most loving thing you can do is let things happen as they're going to happen. In this section, we are coming closer and closer to the end on the, of the Sermon on the Mount. We know this in part because of a verse toward the end of our section in chapter 7, verse 12. So in everything, Jesus says, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, if we were reading the whole sermon together in one morning and we were listening to it, we might hear the connection. Uh, way back, early in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, verse 17, after the Beatitudes and the introduction to the sermon, right before he gets to the meat of the Sermon on the Mount, all of the commandments, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. They have the phrase, the law and the prophets. This sort of bookends what is happening in all this meat in between these two things. Jesus wants us to know that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. And we are to understand that one of the ways he fulfills them is by helping us to see how to live the Sermon on the Mount. And when we do that, we are living according to the Sermon on the Mount and to the command to uh, love others as we love ourselves. Literally, it doesn't say in verse 12 that uh, this, is the, this sums up the law and the prophets. It says, for this is the law and the prophets. For this is the law and the prophets. So you want to you obey, you want to live by the Jewish law? Live by the Sermon on the Mount. You want to know how to live by the Sermon on the Mount? You treat others as you want them to treat you. You treat others as you want them to treat you. We call this the golden rule. It's been around for a very long time. You can find it in other traditions and religions, in fact. But what scholars have pointed out is that in Judaism, before the time of Jesus, in Judaism, this commandment about treating others as you would have them treat you is only given, only stated in the negative. Only stated in the negative. So, for example, in the Babylonian Talmud, which is an ancient Jewish commentary, Rabbi Hillel, who was a contemporary of Jesus, 
is said to have been in his study one day and a pagan came by and said he wanted to convert to Judaism and that he would do it if Rabbi Hillel would summarize for him the entire Torah, the law, while he, the pagan, stood on one foot. That's his way of saying, just give me the Cliff Notes version, just summarize it, you can do that, I'm in. Just tell me what the Torah, the law, means while I stand on one foot, as quick as you can. What Rabbi Hillel said was this, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor, that is the whole Torah, while the rest is commentary on it, go and learn. I mean, in my eye, this is really profound. Already, before Jesus comes along, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole of the Jewish law. The rest is just commentary. But he states it in the negative. Jesus twists it, turns it into the positive. He turns it into the positive, and so now it's no longer enough that we not do harm or evil to our neighbors. Now we have to do good to them. We have to do good for them. We have to act justly. We have to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. It appears to me that if we could figure out how to do everything else so far in the Sermon on the Mount, um, anger, how we relate to our spouses, divorce, lying, hatred for our enemies, on and on it goes. If we could do all of that, if that all began to be a part of our lives, we would find withholding judgment from other people quite easy. We would find it quite easy, I think. I don't know because I've never attained all these things before. It seems to me that the command not to judge others is sort of the culmination of the Sermon on the Mount because after this section, he begins his conclusion, which we'll hit next week. The command not to judge others is sort of the culmination of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we saw this past week, judgmentalism ultimately leads to very dark and tragic places. What happened on Tuesday in Atlanta, what happened there is an example of the judgment that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7. Admittedly, it is an extreme and tragic example. It is very far outside what any of us would ever think of as a possibility. But that makes it all the more relevant. That makes it all the more relevant. The violence, the hate, the racism and sexism against people of Asian descent is a tragic and heartbreaking picture of what happens when we treat other human beings as enemies, as objects, as less than us, as less worthy than we are, rather than as people who are made in God's image. It's a picture of where things can go. Sometimes, literally. Oftentimes, emotionally and relationally for us. You know, whatever the legal or official findings will be in this case, both racism and against Asian Americans and sexism and object- objectification of women, both of these things are at work. They intersect here. A man claiming to know and follow Jesus exacted the most severe form of judgment against those he deemed as less human and less worthy than himself. He took their lives. He not only ignored the plank in his own eye, if the reports are to be believed, and these reports so far I understand only come from him of why he did it. And most of us really don't know ourselves well enough to know why we do things. But if the reports are to believe about why he did it, not only did he 
failed to see the plank in his own eye. He blamed these women for putting it in there. Can we, friends, understand our judgmentalism is like his to one degree or another? Can we see our judgmental thoughts and words and attitude as damaging to other human beings? As if they are less than or worse than us. Can we lament what is happening to the Asian American community, particularly in this past year during the pandemic, but it's been going on long before that? Can we confess and repent of our part in this judgmentalism, in our words, in our silence, in our slurs, in our actions, in our attitudes. There are some who think to talk about such things has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, or at least not as much as some of us think it does. But that's incorrect. For the God who gave us the law and the prophets is the God who gave us His Son who fulfilled the law of the prophets. And the Son who fulfilled the law of the prophets told us that of all the 613 commandments in the Jewish law, the two most important were love of God and love of neighbor, period. To quote the rabbi, all the rest is commentary. Love of God and love of neighbor. And racism and sexism and ageism and all sorts of other things are flat out opposite of love of neighbor. I talk about racism's evil. We talk about racism's evil because it falls under the greatest commandment of all. We must love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And let's be honest, folks. Learning to deal with these challenging evils in ourselves and in others, and many other challenging evils in the world, these things are hard. Jesus' words today, in our culture, in this time in which we live, are like a dagger to the heart if we're paying attention. They are hard, they are challenging, and if we're listening, they are convicting. So much so that some have tried to explain these words away as if they just cannot possibly apply to us. But they do. We've said from the very beginning, Jesus meant for his words, his teaching, and all of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount to be taken seriously. And that is where Jesus' comments on prayer in the second part of our passage lead us today. Jesus says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you? If your son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, first of all, it seems to us This doesn't seem to go with the first part about judgment at all. It seems to not be connected at all. Except when we realize this. That if you are tempted to judge someone, if you are in a difficult relationship and you are in the mood to judge and condemn someone, one of the best things you can do is to pray. To acknowledge where you are and to ask God for help. It it does a couple of things. First, praying for the person that you would like to condemn, that you have some issue with, praying for that person, first of all, invites God into the situation in a fresh way, at least in your eyes. I believe God is always at work anyway. And it invites transformation in your own heart. 
For those of you who have prayed for people that you've had difficulty with, people that you'd rather judge and condemn than love, you know that if you pray long enough, you're changed. You begin to feel some compassion, some understanding for this person. And so maybe Jesus is saying we need to ask for the help we need. It's difficult. I don't know if you know it or not, people are difficult. Helping people who need help, also very difficult. But Jesus wants us to know that the help we need is right there. It's one of the good things the Father wants to give us, to enable us, not only to be less judgmental, but also to live out the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. The good things we need. All of these things are connected, and you can see this a little bit better when you lay this passage uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, next to the one we covered a couple weeks ago, chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. And when you do this, and this slide is in the Bible app live event as well, when you do this, you see that they, they're meant to tell us these things go together. So, for instance, in Matthew 6, we have an exhortation. They both start with an exhortation. Matthew 6, do not store up treasures on earth. Matthew 7, do not judge. Followed by a parable about the eye. In Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. In Matthew 7, Don't try to take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. And then an additional parable in Matthew 6, the one about two masters in Matthew 7, dogs and pigs. Then the argument in both chapter 6 and chapter 7 is an argument from the lesser to the greater. In chapter 6, if God provides for the birds and the flowers, how much more so will he provide for you? In chapter 7, if you as an evil parent know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give you good gifts? And finally, There's the answer, God's provision. In chapter 6, God provides for our basic human needs. In chapter 7, God gives us good things. The parallel of these two passages is meant to show us that as strange as it may seem for us to move from judgment to prayer, they're all related. Just like this side, Matthew 6, is all related. God wants to give us the things we need to enable us to live the kingdom life. God gives us every good thing we need to live purposeful, abundant lives in the kingdom of God. Everything we need. The kingdom is here, the kingdom is now, the kingdom is ours. All we have to do is ask. All we have to do is ask. And when we do, God meets us in that place and gives us what we need, not only to cease being judgmental people, but to try to abide by all the things we find in the Sermon on the Mount and anywhere else. We just have to ask. There's a quote from a 7th century Eastern Orthodox monk who gets at it this way. Ask then, unremittingly and without doubting, however poor your efforts to gain holiness, however weak your strength, and you will receive great gifts far beyond anything that you desire. All in the context, friends, of learning to live a kingdom way of life. The Sermon on the Mount is not about moral perfection or protecting ourselves from the stains of the world, from the pollution of the world. Rather, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is all about how we treat others. Look at it. It's all about how we treat others. It's about being salt and light in the community, in all of our relationships, and in the world. It's about our calling to be those who are sent into the world as agents of change and redemption. Jesus' major concern in these chapters is not that we be perfectly clean on the inside, but rather that we be transformed and ever transforming so that we can can go out and live things out on the outside, so that we can pursue God's purpose 
in the world so that we can be present to our neighbors, so that we can be Christ to our neighbors. But this takes work. This takes work. This takes transformation. Scholar Dale Allison put it this way. I love this sentence. Because human beings unhappily possess an inbred proclivity to mix ignorance of themselves with arrogance toward others, the call to recognize one's own faults is a commonplace of moral and religious traditions. Everybody says this. Pay attention to your own faults. If we want to move from a fault-finding, sinful person into a kingdom person who knows how to love our neighbors as we love ourselves and does not judge them, we have work to do. But we can ask for help. Because all of us, inbred in us, I totally agree, is the proclivity to mix ignorance of ourselves with, toward, with our arrogance toward others. <clears throat> this whole series on the Sermon on the Mount has been about transformation. We have been, over this year, been walking through each of the, the three ECC touchstones. And in case you're new here, those ECC touchstones are welcome, transformation, and presence. We have one more week in the Sermon on the Mount. We then we have Easter. And after Easter, we're going to go into uh, the, the final series of this year, which, is, which will be drawn from our touchstone of presence, which means that we are sent into the world as agents of change and redemption. How we live out in the world. We've looked at welcome as we have been welcomed with God. We welcome others. We've looked at transformation. We engage on the journey towards Christiformity, becoming more and more like Christ. And then we were able to go out into the world and be Jesus to others. And that title of that series we're going to begin after Easter is this one, <clears throat> The Hope of Glory. The Hope of Glory. And that comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. To them, God has chosen, after talking about uh, Israel and what God has done through Israel and their Messiah, he says, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us, that you there is plural. It's not you as an individual, that's true too. It's Christ in us is the hope of glory. It is in us and through us that God, for some strange reason, decides to accomplish his mission as we are present in the world. So we're going to begin that sermon series after Easter, and once again we're going to tie it into a book that we'd love for you to read along. We're not preaching through the book, we're preaching alongside the book. Uh, There's different ways you can engage in that. This is Jim Smith's uh, third in this trilogy. The Good and Beautiful Community, uh, Following the Spirit, I have to read that subtitle, Extending Grace, Demonstrating Love. We hope that you will consider uh, in what way you can play a part, take part in reading the book yourself or as a part of a group, and certainly to give yourself to the next sermon series. Then I want to tell you about another book. Your Church Council... Your pastors and directors are all reading a book together. We're doing this through consultation with a ministry, an outside ministry. And I want to share with you the title of that book because I would invite you to read it as well. It is a book that uh, we need. It is a book that the larger church of Jesus Christ needs. It is a book our community needs, our nation needs, and I would argue our world needs. And nowhere in this book, I'm making you wait for it, nowhere in this book is the word judgment or judgmental said. As far as I can remember. I just finished it last week. But it's all about that. It's all about how we engage other people with whom we have issues or conflicts. The name of the book is The Anatomy of Peace. Uh, It's a bestseller. You can find it on Amazon. We are reading it and we are discussing it as counsel and pastors and directors. And I encourage you to read it as well. 
I think you'll find it uh, both an easy book to read, it's written in a story form, and uh, a very practical book. And I have already begun to try some of the principles, and I'm shocked at how much of a difference they can make, and just how I perceive others in the world around me, and how I can fight that urge, that proclivity that we all have to mix ignorance of ourselves with arrogance toward others. So I invite you, to whatever degree God might be calling you, that you would engage in any of these things uh, as we continue our journey through these touchstones. Would you pray with me as we close? God in heaven, we give you thanks this day for the gift of the Sermon on the Mount. We're almost done with it, Lord, but let us never be done with it. God, let us turn to it year after year that you would speak to us through your servant, your son, Jesus, that we would be on this road toward transformation. Lord, I pray for every person who's worshiping with us today, God, that we would all see, Lord, our own proclivity towards ignorance about ourselves, mixed with arrogance toward others, that we would decide in our hearts by the power of the Spirit and the resources of your kingdom to lay aside our judgmental attitudes and to engage people as people made in the image of God, as people who are worthy enough to be loved by you, that we might love them as well. Lord, let us know of your grace when we fail. Let us know of the promise that you will forgive us and cleanse us. Let us know that our eternity with you does not rest on whether we do this well or poorly, and that you are love. And may you receive all the glory, all the praise in Jesus' name.